Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso. Alex Dykes is coming to you on location. Alex, where are you right now? I am in the back seat of a BMW i4 and, um, you know, headroom is a little limited. But other than that, this is BMW's first electric sedan. Now, interesting thing today, we've had a spate of electric launches. One of them is the BMW i7, which I want to say is sort of like a counter to the EQS, but at the same time, it's really not. Where does it sit in the ecosystem of luxury EVs in 2022? Yeah, I'm intrigued by that because BMW has said there's going to be a plug-in hybrid version. And of course, we all know there's going to be a regular gasoline version of the 7 Series at some point as well. Um, so rather than doing what Mercedes did, where they reimagined an S-Class could be for the 21st century, BMW basically said... The 21st century is going to be gasoline, plug-in, hybrid, and electric, and they're all going to be the same sort of vehicle together. Um, one might argue that at the moment, that is maybe more rational since you know product development life cycles tend to last six to 10 years. And that would take us to that next stage of electric vehicle requirements in America and in Europe. So logically, why create a dedicated EV platform in this generation when you could wait till next generation maybe and have a little bit more synergy? But it does make the 7 somehow a little bit less exciting, I guess, for the electric car shopper than the EQS. Now, of course, the Neue Klasse is a dedicated EV platform from BMW. It's coming in 2025. That truly is going to be the answer to the EQS, which is built on a dedicated base. Um, do you think it hurts BMW at all in the market that some of the packaging is going to be similar to a gas-powered car, especially compared to the interior volume Lucid achieves with a much smaller vehicle? I'm going to wait to see how that goes in that versus this i4. We'll have our editor toss up some pictures from this i4, but right in the middle of me is a very large transmission hub for the regular gasoline drivetrain. If we end up with that sort of compromise in the i7, which I don't know if we have exact details on, I haven't seen good pictures of the rear floor pan yet, then I would say that could definitely be a problem. The question we don't know is, are they doing what Volvo has promised, but we haven't seen yet for the upcoming XC90, because they're promising that that platform will have completely different floor pans in the different versions. So the battery electric vehicle and the gasoline hybrid vehicle may be the same, you know, bottom up, but the most important bottom layer of the car is actually going to be quite different. And BMW hasn't said. Now, for those of you following us out in cyberspace, uh, basic specs are okay. The car is going to charge at 195 kilowatts. It's got an 11 kilowatt onboard charger. And the battery, which is around 101 kilowatt hours, is going to be good for somewhere between 300 and 320 miles on the EPA cycle, unless something really surprising shakes out. It's competitive, but it's not class leading. Is that enough? I think it's okay. I think that charge times and the charge curve is going to be a bit more important than peak charge rate because, you know, a good example is if I grab my computer here, which is hanging out in the middle, um, you know, that Tesla Model S that is right there, that is the non-plaid Model S. So expect that video uh, on the channel at some point soon. That one peak charge rate is only 250 kW. So it is not as fast as, you know, the Lucid. It's not as fast as the new Hummer or some of the promised GM platforms. But in the real world, that will maintain a really high rate of charge for a long time. And that's what's going to be really important for getting that road trip completed. So it depends on your use case as well. And if you can if you can have an EV that will cling on to 300 or 350 kW for, say, a 20-minute window, and that's all you need, then that'll be great. But if you really want to go 10% to 80% for that next stop on a road trip, then the entire charging window becomes more critical and average charge rates become more important. Like the EQS, its peak rate's not great, but it clings on to that really high rate for a super long time. So as far as average charge rate goes, it actually beats the Tesla Model S right next to me. Um, Tesla has promised some faster charging coming soon, though, so stay tuned on that. And that's a really important point because average rate of charge combines 
the ability to hit a peak, but then also the tendency to stay near that peak. A great mm -hmm. example of that is something like the Audi e-tron, the SUV. It's not class leading by most measures of EV performance, but its ability to continue charging at up to 50 kilowatts, even with a 99% state of charge, means that it actually outcharges from close to zero to 100, many more heralded high power units. It's actually one of the fastest charging vehicles in spite of roughly a 155 real peak rate. Yep, it definitely makes a difference. Um, you know, the Ionic 5, the new eGMP platform from Hyundai and Kia, also the EV6 there in the upcoming Genesis, they have a really high average charge rate as well. They they cling on to a pretty decent charge rate over 10%, over, you know, the top 10% of the battery, over 90%, I should say, um, but not quite as fast as the Model S. I was actually really surprised that this Model S was clinging on to 50kW up at around 98, 99% battery charge. So, I mean, it, it scoots it on into the end practically on fire. Um, and that was very impressive. That definitely beats the charge curve that we see in the Porsche Taycan, unless we're talking about that very limited window where the Taycan will peak up there around 260, 270. So, um, you know, peak charge rate isn't everything. Yeah, it's basically the old saw about the the marathon runner being able to beat the miler. The miler is going to run out to a lead and then fall back in the long run. So this matters. It matters immensely. And ultimately, I also think things like service sale distribution networks matter. Ultimately, is BMW going to be able to satisfy the demand? Because that is the topic of our times. What are you hearing about the i4 that you're currently reviewing? It's difficult to tell about demand so far. Um, I've contacted a few local BMW dealers. They wouldn't talk about it. Uh, BMW hasn't said too much about orders and demand just yet either. Um, I will expect that they will sell as many as they can in the United States right now. If supplies are constrained with everything. So how it looks in a world where we have as many as they can build, that I'm a little bit less sure on. Um, you know, one thing that just occurred to me, though, while we were talking about charging, uh, our friends over at Inside EVs make a really good point when it comes to CCS charging. And that is that most Electrify America stations top out at 350 amps. So when you actually look at some of those peak charge rates, it's really going to be dependent on exactly which charger you can find, whether we're talking about some of those fast 400 volt charging vehicles or some of the new crop of 800 volt uh, EVs like the uh, General Motors Ultium platform vehicles. Has BMW spoke at all about, I know they're using, I believe they're using prismatic cells, but have they spoken at all about the longevity of their batteries? I know Toyota is talking about with its new EV, 10% degradation or less over 10 years. Has BMW even broached the topic? BMW has not. In fact, actually, Toyota's statement was very unusual because no other auto manufacturer has ever really talked about their, their design and you'll notice, though, that Toyota did not say we guarantee the battery for 10 years. That's true. That's true. It was we designed this battery with this target in mind. But even that was actually quite forward uh, because Tesla's never really commented about how their battery design envelope looks on any of their modern vehicles. Um, I should say that this vehicle, like pretty much every modern EV, uses a pouch style lithium ion battery, which is a little bit different than a prismatic cell. So prismatic cell is sort of like a, 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 circuit, a circular cell, the, the cylindrical cells that we find in the Tesla, only they've been squished. So it's still sort of the jelly roll thing going on, but then they squish it into a square case. And pouch cells, everything is, is parallel to one another. They sort of stack things up in the flexible pouch style bag. Um, and at the moment, I don't know of any EVs that are still using prismatic cells because those did have some some uh, longevity issues. For some reason, that particular form factor tends to create dendrites a little bit more rapidly, leading to battery failure. And those tend to puff up a bit, causing some mechanical issues uh, inside battery canisters. And for some reason, pouch cells don't have that same problem. And cylindrical cells like that Tesla don't have that same problem. For all you driving enthusiasts out there, you should also know that the power rating of the initial i7 is 536 horsepower, but they are anticipating over 600 horsepower and 700 pound-feet of torque in an upcoming M-influenced model. So stay tuned on that front. Yeah. This is the opening round, not the final volley. We spoke a yeah, bit about Toyota. Performance ends up because like there's a video on the channel that you guys can all reference to if you have the time. Horsepower numbers and torque peak torque figures are not everything with EVs. It's the power ramp that's incredibly important um, because a vehicle could produce a peak of 700 pound-feet of torque, but if it, if it doesn't come on until you're already at 60 miles an hour, it's not going to affect your 0 to 60 score. And that's one of the reasons that this Model S next to me is wicked fast. We actually got 
three seconds zero to 60. It's rated for 3.1 according to Tesla, three seconds even repeatedly time after time after time because Tesla ramps that power really fast. And there are a decent number of EVs with power to weight ratios that are similar or better than that on paper that are not that fast. And a lot of people have said that's one of the reasons that in particular the Volkswagen i4 doesn't seem that strong because there yes. is a slow phasing torque curve exactly. and it feels more like a gas powered engine. Yeah, and that's the reason that the BZ4X, and we're going to talk about its new Lexus relative here soon, but that's the reason the BZ4X and the Solterra actually feel much faster than their numbers would otherwise indicate. On paper, they're only 201 horsepower, 202 horsepower, something like that. Um, and they are almost as fast within tenths of a second of the ID4 all-wheel drive that's almost 300. I jumped the gun a little bit before, but now we can talk about the, I guess, kissing cousin of the Toyota and the Solterra, which is this new Lexus. Electric, Toyota-based, more upscale, and a little bit odd mechanically, since I think they were saying that the smaller of the BZ4X batteries will be standard on the Lexus. It's a small margin, but a confusing one. What are yeah. we getting with the Lexus that's not expressly Toyota? What sets it apart? Yeah, this is an interesting, weird one, because uh, in the BZ4X, they, weird name, by the way, and even though Lexus has an alphabet soup, I still think RZ is better than BZ4X, or Busy Forks, apparently, as people are calling it. Um, in the United States, there are two battery packs in the BZ4X and the Subaru Solterra, I guess you could say. Uh, although the Solterra is only coming here as all-wheel drives, so it's only getting the one of them here at the moment. There's a Panasonic battery pack and a CATL pack. The Panasonic pack charges faster. It's slightly smaller, but it charges at 150 kW. And for America, they decided that they wanted the extra capacity given to us by the CATL pack, even though the downside is it charges slower at just 100 kW. And this is why the DC fast charge times don't align in Japan and in America, because in Japan, they all get the Panasonic pack, apparently. Um, so it's logical that they gave it the Panasonic pack for that faster charge rate, even though it has all-wheel drive but range is going to suffer a little bit. I think the motor situa situation is a little bit weirder, though. Rather than, you know, the BMW that I'm in right now, or the Tesla on that side, or the Ionic over there, and the EV6 over there in the driveway, all four of them are with us, they all have bigger, more powerful electric motors in the back than they do up front. That's definitely the thing for modern EVs. Toyota went in a different direction. Um, the BZ4X and the Solterra have identical electric motors, very Volvo-like. So same one in the front, same one in the back. But in the Lexus, we all knew that there was going to be a more powerful motor. And everybody just super duper hoped that that would be in the back. And it's not. It's going to be in the front. Some more talking points with the Lexus relate to things like the unconventional layout of the dashboard on the BZ4X being somewhat updated, upgraded, and a lot more, I would say, adoptable by people who are already used to RX SUVs. Talk a little bit about the interior, because for me, from a sensory standpoint, what you see and what you hold is about as different inside as you could get, whereas on the outside, they're more similar. It's really the interior that diverges. With the new RZ, as you can see on the inside, it has the screen that we found in the redesigned Lexus NX, which we assume is going to be in the next Lexus RX. And you can see the dashboard is generally much more normal themed, I would say, versus the BZ4X. I have to say I like this design better, um, but I think it's a little bit weird that the RZ is actually going to be getting the yoke steering wheel that we find in the Japanese market BZ as well. What do you think about the yoke? I think the only way the yoke makes sense is if you also get the steer-by-wire system that's been promised in conjunction with that yoke. Because if you can calibrate a wheel to work more or less the way an F1 car works, where you never have to go beyond opposite lock, uh, basically either 150 degrees of total range of motion or 150 to each side, it's not clear they've talked about that 150 degree number. We don't know whether it's 150 each side or total, but yeah. it makes it a lot more intuitive to use a yoke because hand over hand control is the safety and practical pitfall of a yoke system. If you don't have a direct geared link between the steering wheel and the steering rack, you don't have a lot of those problems. So I think it's it's either yeah. both as a package or, or neither. And that is a flaw with the Model S that's over there on that side. Now that we've put about 350 miles on it so far, uh, actually a little bit more than that, I, I tell a lie, it's about 450 miles so far, um, the, the yoke 
situation is just a hot mess. Uh, it's actually the only thing that I have a problem with on the entire car, which is definitely saying something um, because the Model S has come a long way. We can talk about that later, but the yoke setup, just not a great idea. Um, I really wish that there was another option and I'm glad that it at least appears that Lexus is not gonna make us get the yoke uh, with the RZ. It looks like it's gonna be in some trim, assuming from Lexus, they haven't really specified how that's gonna be introduced in the United States. But um, yeah, not a fan of the yoke, especially if you're in parking lot maneuvers, multi-point turns, uh, a tight winding mountain road, uh, especially around the area that I live and even paved roads around here, it is awkward to use that yoke thing. Um, so let's just hope that they've sorted that out. I'm not entirely clear that a quicker steering ratio would fix everything, I have to say, though, um, because variable gear ratio setups with with extreme you know, variability can start to get awkward feeling. Without a doubt, the go-kart sensation inside a crossover SUV is kind of uncharted territory for vehicle dynamics, especially in consumer hands. Uh, some sort of variable ratio that's speed dependent, maybe even effort that's speed dependent could help to fix this problem. But I feel like we're now fixing problems that are caused by problematic choices. Like you need mm -hmm. drive-by-wire to have a yoke, and then you need to fix drive-by-wire in order to make it practical so you can in turn have the yoke. So, I mean, guys, the wheel, you don't need to reinvent it. It's a cliche, trite, but true. Yeah. I mean, it's a, this is an interesting conjunction of technologies in a way, because electric power steering is essential for high fuel efficiency, which is essential for an electric car, because you're not going to run a hydraulic pump to run your hydraulic steering. So in an electric car, obviously it's going to be electric power steering. Um, and at that point, uh, Lexus made an interesting point where they said, you know, when they look back on it, the way that the way that inputs and torque happens in an electric steering rack, uh, the physical connection was essentially not used in in vehicles produced by Lexus over the last decade or so. And that really addresses the question that I think most mainstream consumers are going to have, which is not, well, what's the effort like or what's the yoke like in practice? It's how can I feel safe without a physical link to the steering rack? Like mm -hmm. that is what I, I suppose in the early days of power assisted brakes, that was the problem that people had with the idea. And some people were marketing, some brands were marking the security of steel from pedal to wheel, the physical link as a backup. I mean, and admittedly, Infinity has had the devil of a time making their direct adaptive steering system function. I guess I'd hate to use the word normally, but that's probably the best way to describe it is it, it definitely has an awkward feel to it in every vehicle that it's been in. Um, and so I'm going to be interested to see how Toyota's interpretation of this really differs from what Infinity has done. Um, you know, Infinity, I would argue, has not not spent a lot of time refining it. They basically just said, you know, here it is. That's the way that it is. If you don't like it, we might give you some expanded options to to avoid it, not really fix it. And I think all of that is interesting and probably a challenge for another day and probably a basis for another test. I think you're going to have to, it's not just a yoke anymore. If it's truly drive by wire, that's going to be something no one's ever seen in a consumer grade vehicle. Before I pass any judgment on whether it will or won't work, let's just go over some tech basics. We're looking to have probably 150 kilowatt charging in this new Lexus, mm -hmm. uh, somewhere around 225 miles of range, performance that's very similar to the Toyota and the Subaru, maybe a little bit less on the basis of increased luxury and weight. The real difference is going to be interior quality and interior design and a higher grade of noise vibration and harshness insulation. We're also looking at a vehicle that has the same wheelbase, but about four inches more length overall. Expect that'll at least pay dividends in cargo capacity. Yeah, and it's also going to have Lexus's longer standard warranty, et cetera. So, you know, it's going to keep that Lexus RX customer that wants something other than another RX hybrid happy, I think. Now, if you're not getting the Lexus RX and you've got a hankering for some Mustang or at least Mustang branded crossovers, you're going to have to wait till 2023. What's happening with the Mustang Mach-E right now for 22? Yeah, it looked a few weeks ago, we noticed this on their website that you could no longer order. And apparently now it's been confirmed that uh, you cannot order a Mach-E anymore. So uh, the 
demand has just been through the roof and Ford needs time to actually hit the pause button on the order book to actually build the vehicles that were ordered. Um, but they have announced that they are targeting over 200,000 units of production by the end of 2023. Uh, that kind of goes in line with what they said earlier last year about their, their wrap up. Uh, in production plans for that particular model. Uh, but it really was surprising that it didn't take long, really, as far as months on sale for this to go from limited availability down to no availability as far as orders. Uh, so if you don't already have an order in on one, you have to try and scrounge around on a dealer lot or buy a used one. Now, we've talked a little bit about companies favoring certain high-profile launches and high-priority vehicles basically taking the semiconductors and components they've got and favoring certain model lines. Now we find ourselves in a difficult situation for Ford where in April, it's gonna be ramping up production of consumer delivery F-150 Lightnings at the same time it's trying to fulfill the orders it has for the Mach-E. Uh, do these cannibalize each other or does it come out of gas powered SUVs and trucks? It's hard to really tell uh, based on the kinds of semiconductors that they use and where they come from, it's not a direct one-to-one, -one, which is something that a lot of people will mistakenly, uh, you know, confused here. So, you know, just because we build electric vehicles and they take more chips doesn't mean that if we stopped building the electric vehicles, we could build more F-150s. They use different kinds of chips. Um, but that said, obviously, the semiconductor shortage is still a problem. Uh, Ford has definitely seems to have had a better hold on semiconductor priorities as far as their manufacturers go, you know, being higher priority than say Rivian. Rivian apparently is in a world of hurt for supplies at the moment. Uh, also Stellantis has done very well as far as keeping a hold of their chip supplies. Um, how that will look next year or the year after, we don't know. We do know that major chip supply companies are ramping up production at record pace, but unfortunately the demand for consumer electronics, consumer electronic chips, and of course now electric vehicles is really putting major stress on these international supply chains. Um, I would not be surprised if there are some additional knock-on effects, however, in the Ford lineup. We already know that there were supposed to be some additional Ford EVs announced by now. So the worldwide, you know, we widely expected an electric aviator, perhaps an electric navigator, something along those lines at some point here soon. And most likely those are the models that are getting delayed. Um, they don't seem to have put any delays on gasoline powered vehicles. It just seems to be some of their, their other electric, um, you know, moves that they're, they're putting a, a pause on. And it's also possible that we might see perhaps a delay, for instance, in the fleet versions of some vehicles or maybe limited constraints there. Um, but Ford has been pretty dedicated about fleets, so it's hard to really comment on that. I know that the e-transit has been selling relatively well, for instance. Now, it's true, and it's a good point you make that semiconductors are not fully fungible. There are different chips for different purposes. Is there going to be a competition between the Mach-E and the F-150 for battery cells, though? Yeah, that is another interesting question. We don't know if they're using the same cells or not. Um, so there may be or there may not be, depending on exactly how that production is allocated and exactly what we've got. Most likely, although Ford has not commented on this, I should know next week or about two weeks from the date we're recording this video somewhere around there because I will be driving the F-150 Lightning first week of May. So be sure and stay tuned for that. Um, so we should know more then. I would expect a high level of commonality between these two packs. So in if that is true, which is the logical you know, extrapolation here, then there is going to be some natural competition between these two models. And how Ford decides to assign that production, they just won't say. Now, you did mention fleet sales and how that might understandably be the poor stepsister of consumer-grade trucks. Fleet sales are a controversial thing in Detroit, and they're a controversial thing generally in the market because while you can build volume, you also hurt your brand equity when you sell fleet vehicles to the likes of rental car companies such as Hertz, which is going to buy 100,000 Tesla Model 3s. Is this a bad move for Tesla? Yes, there's the upfront sales, but if I were to tell you in the 2000s, the single most damaging practice by Detroit automakers, it was fleet sales, the drug from which they could not withdraw. Does this help or hurt Tesla in the long run? It is an interesting question that we don't yet know the answer to. And I should say Polestar has also decided to sell fleet cars to Hertz. Yes. Um, that was relatively recent news as well. Uh, we won't know for a while, I would I would argue. You know, two, two years tops generally is how long, you know, the rental car companies will keep a car. 
Um, right now, secondhand demand is pretty high for Teslas as well. So I don't think in the short term, this is going to be a problem for Tesla. Um, and of course, remember that Tesla claims that they didn't give Hertz any special deals on the car. That's, That's probably the important part here um, is that traditionally in a fleet sales arrangement, part of what damages uh, the, the future resale value of the vehicle is that there is a massive discount on the hood of the vehicle, which then translates to cheap sales later because the car company you know, wants to dump them at whatever, whatever assigned rate that is. Um, so exactly how this translates into Tesla, we don't know. We also don't know whether they were given a special deal with Polestar or not. But I, I was surprised that Tesla very quickly came out with a statement and said they didn't get a deal. Yeah, I, I think there's an understanding that it's a bad look just because of the history of fleet sales, especially mm -hmm. rental fleet sales. So the perception that this is now the default choice when you go down to Florida, if you look at the single most damaging um I would say part of the Mustang's existence was the the V6, the four-cylinder automatic transition Florida rental car. That was that was the counter to the tire shredding, supercharged V8s and enthusiast spec GTs and Shelbys. It was always the fact that you could basically rent this thing as a disposable commodity from a company that couldn't care less about cars in a sea of identical rental pods and i don't think tesla's yeah. image which is luxury which is performance and frankly exclusivity is consistent with that but it's all going to depend on what they sell for when they hit the market after their rental service it is an interesting construct of course because remember the you know the the true era of the the rental car concern which i would argue never really affected mustang that that badly like the average GT owner didn't suddenly buy a Camaro instead of a Mustang because the Mustangs were were on the Hertz rental car counter. Um, so in that respect, it, it, it there there's some some you know fudge factor there. Um, but I would also remind everybody that you know most of these car rental companies started as arms of the big three American car companies. So um, you know it was the captive unit, and of course it was full of Fords because Ford owned it, kind of a thing. Um, and now we are seeing a really interesting blend of, e of, of vehicles available on rental car lots, especially now that major car companies are, are not willing to discount fleet vehicles the same way that they used to. And there's just not a lot of supply either. So we have car companies like Hertz, et cetera, that are actually buying used cars from fleet auctions um, to try and prop up their, uh, their rental car fleets. And we also have you know, reality is like if you go to Maui and go to Hertz, you can find yourself a Honda Accord. And Honda has long claimed that they don't sell fleet vehicles, but there are brand new Accords side by side by side right there on the rental car lot. Um, and I'm not entirely clear whether it has hampered their resale value either. We also see, you know, the the opportunity to, you know, option up into luxury cars at a lot of rental car counters, something that we didn't see in the past. Um because of customer demand. And what has that done to their resale value is, is, you know, a little bit unsure, but it hasn't seemed to harm them as much because it's not as big of a number perhaps. Um, but you could definitely find yourself an Infiniti or a Mercedes. Um, it's a little bit harder to find a BMW or an Audi at the rental car lot, but definitely Mercedes are easy to find. And I think at the end of cycle is really gonna be the single biggest factor here because at the end of the day, Tesla has probably done more than most car companies to try to take control of its secondary market, especially with the notion that they might, and I think this is just a hoax, ultimately create an EV taxi company based on incoming used leases. But they recently ended the option to purchase at the end of the lease, which is a much more substantive move because in the immediate term, that gives them the opportunity to sell the car again and set the price on the aftermarket. Exactly. And that's not uncommon because a number of car companies out there, a number of mainline car companies have recently decided to do the same thing um, and say that it also say that you cannot sell your lease to a third party. So there's no third party buyout leases, et cetera, because dealers are really looking for that used car volume. Um, in a market that's very constrained for new cars. And Tesla is not immune to that. You know, there's definitely a used Tesla market to be had and your Tesla dealer is all the same company. So if you can control where the cars go when the lease is done, you're definitely going to do it. Yeah, that, we won't know for years. We won't know for years because these cars aren't going to hit the secondary market for years. It's probably a good move by Hertz. It's already paid off in terms of publicity. What it means for Tesla in the wrong, long run, again, it's just going to be 
where these cars are, what they sell for, who buys them, and what condition they're in when they hit the secondary market. And it's just dot, 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 to be continued. Exactly. Now, moving on a car style that is intriguing and at the same time frustrating, it is the hydrogen-powered car. At heart, mm. it's an EV. But I feel like the hydrogen scene is as challenging and niche today as the EV scene was in the days of the EV1, the Honda EV Plus, the RAV4 electric. We're in early days, or is this thing just a dead end? Yeah, it depends on who you talk to in a way and where in the world you're doing the talking. Um, there are definitely rational engineering pragmatic reasons for hydrogen vehicles. And we have two, perhaps three, maybe four car companies in the world that are dedicated to e to hydrogen technology in varying levels of dedication. Uh, Toyota and Hyundai, very dedicated. Honda, pretty dedicated. BW, seemingly dedicated. Uh, it's sort of in that order there. Um, and General Motors doing a lot of investment into hydrogen fuel cells but not necessarily hydrogen vehicles. So they've got a entire fuel cell arm that does stationary fuel cells, portable fuel cells, things like that. Um, the bigger the vehicles you get, the more hydrogen makes sense. Like in this BMW i4, hydrogen probably does not make a lot of sense. I would argue in the current generation Mirai, great landing, totally wrong airport. That was exactly the wrong vehicle to put a hydrogen fuel cell stack in. The Nexo makes a lot of sense. Um, and I should say that we've had a Nexo for now three years. We'll have had it actually three complete years in May. Um, and it has been an interesting experience. I bought it because the lease was cheap um, and because I had never owned a hydrogen vehicle before. We'd had hydro hybrid vehicles. We've had uh, you know battery electric vehicles. We've had diesels. We've had gasoline cars. All that was left was a hydrogen vehicle. So I said, I must have one of these to, to find out what this thing is like. And to be honest, the experience is very easy to adapt to. It's very gasoline car-like. You drive 380 miles, you plug it in to the gas station, you fill it up for five minutes, you get another 380 miles, and you tootle along to your next destination. Um, there is no EV that is coming anywhere close to that kind of rapid fill-up. Um, you know, the closest you can get is like a, you know, a Model S or or Model 3 or a uh, an eGMP platform vehicle from Hyundai and Kia. They will give you 70% battery charge in about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, depending on the vehicle. But that 70% charge is not going to give you 380 miles. You know, you're going to get 250, 260 miles of range in that 20, 20 25 minutes. Um, and that's going to take five times the time of the Nexo. So interesting thing was, uh, you know, during the pandemic, there were still some new launch events going on in Southern California. They were very awkward and socially distanced, et cetera, but it meant that I couldn't fly. So I had to drive down there because no car company wanted to pay to put anybody on a plane. Um, and in that uh, window, I had the option of driving our uh, Mach-E, which had a relatively decent, not fast, fast, but decent fast charging. Um, theoretical range of 270 miles, and it's about 300 miles down to Los Angeles from where I am. Or I could drive the Nexo with an EPA rating of 260, something, 256, like that. And every time I would take the Nexo, simply because it meant le way less time away from home. The entire trip, because usually it was a go down in the morning, come back in the evening, the entire trip would take two hours less than if I had taken the Mustang. Um, and it, that was the best use case scenario I could say for it. Now, I think it's important to talk about the one Trump card that, that they've got. They work like EVs. They sound like EVs. They drive like EVs. And in terms of actual motive power, they're powered very much like EVs. Mm -hmm. Just but a different kind of battery, really. It's the five-minute fill that gets people. And at the rate we're seeing battery charging advance, high-powered charging now available on cars from Hyundai and Kia, no longer Taycans and Lucids and Teslas. At the point where you can now start to talk about maybe getting hundreds of miles of range in under 10 minutes or in 10 minutes, does hydrogen lose its allure the way battery swapping lost its allure? That is the sort of question here. Um, and I would say we can get reasonable range in 10 minutes, but you're never going to get as much. Like there is no, no electric vehicle will get anywhere close to 
you know, more than 20% of the range that you could get in the same time frame, roughly, even if you double the time frame, even if you say 10 minutes, no EV will get, you know, within 20% of what you can do in a hydrogen vehicle in that same time period is the big thing. Um, simply because of some of the real physical realities of conductors and charging voltages and current, et cetera. So, I mean, pulling 350 KW down an 800 uh, uh, volt, you know, capable EVSE, DC fast charge station is just, that's an incredible amount of power. So if we go to the next level and you want to say, I want to accomplish the same charge event in one quarter of the time, now we're talking about a thousand kilowatts or, or 1200 kilowatts, even depending on the vehicle in order to do that. So we're talking about major stress in the batteries that solid state batteries likely would not solve. We're talking massive conductors. We're talking incredibly high voltages. Something's got to shift there. Uh, or we're talking about conductors the size of dinner plates. None of that is overly rational. Um, I would argue that there are definitely levels we can push uh, DC fast charging for the next level of EVs, boxier EVs like the EV9 or EV minivans or EV pickup trucks, things like that. We could definitely go to 1,000 volts, maybe 1,500 volts. We could definitely go to 500 kW charging, but that's never going to get you the same place that hydrogen could in a similar form factor large vehicle but again it's it's a vehicle form factor question you know a suburban a tahoe a pickup truck those make sense as hydrogen vehicles a sleek sexy sports car a city car those don't really make sense as hydrogen and it's worth mentioning some of the challenges of hydrogen we know well the limitations of evs charters can be hard to find sometimes they're not fast sometimes your car isn't engineered to take the highest capacity charge. Sometimes the charger is broken. Sometimes it's occupied. Sometimes it's not on the route you're driving. Hydrogen does have its challenges. Depending on who you ask, there are between 43 and 52 hydrogen filling stations in the state of California. And I'm not sure any other states have them. So at this point, the fueling infrastructure is extremely constrained. There's also the matter of sourcing. We do have green hydrogen, as it's called, produced by electrolysis of water using renewables. We have blue, which is produced from fossil fuels, but uses CO2 capture and sequestration. And we do have purple pink, which comes from nuclear. But we also have black, which comes from bituminous coal. We have gray, which comes from natural gas using steam methane reforming, which is a fossil fuel process. Mm -hmm. So there is the question of where the hydrogen comes from. And at the moment, most of the hydrogen produced in the United States does come from some sort of fossil fuel source. Correct. And in California, we should address this, I guess, in, in multiple steps here. So in California, there are around 50 hydrogen fueling stations currently scheduled to be 60 sometime by the end of the year. Who knows where that number will be because of pandemic related uh, delays to, to funding and, and things like that. Uh, there are hydrogen filling stations on Oahu as well. Hawaii is the only other place with commercial hydrogen infrastructure. A few other states have test sites, but, you know, variable uh, luck in, in actually getting any, any movement forward. Um, the number of stations is roughly sensible when you consider the number of hydrogen vehicles on sale in California. So like number to number of vehicles, it makes more or less sense. You, you very rarely end up in a situation with a hydrogen vehicle where there's much of a wait at a hydrogen filling station um, because there just aren't very many hydrogen vehicles around. Um, on the sourcing, California being the only state that does this practically requires 33% of hydrogen being renewable. And there is some sort of scheduled tiered date for that to become 100% renewable in the future. Currently, apparently, the, the hydrogen filling infrastructure in California operates at around 66% renewable, with the majority of the rest coming from steam reformation of natural gas, uh, of which California has a, a huge amount. Uh, there are also some industrial byproducts that yield hydrogen. So when you're steam reforming natural gas, you're also trying to drive off other gas products. So, you know, whether you're, you're steam reforming it to get propane or, or hydrogen out, you know, there are various products coming off the column here, et cetera. Um, and hydrogen is one of the items that is collected. Um, there is also a large biomass plant going in right now in Nevada that is supposed to be taking garbage from Southern California, moving it over to a biodigester, and then they're going to be reforming uh, the resulting methane into hydrogen from that plant. So that's considered a green source as far as California is concerned. 
And that particular plant is likely going to be the way that California gets to 100% renewable in the vehicle fuel stock pipeline, um, because it appears that that plant will produce more hydrogen than all the cars in California will consume just in the one plant. And to put everything in perspective, we talked about the number of hydrogen stations. Electrify America, which is probably the largest and most coherent fast charging network in the country other than Tesla's, uh, they've got about 3,500 chargers right now. They want to have 9,500 by 2025, and there are approximately 150,000 gas stations in the country. So that, yep. that, that is obviously the ultimate goal to have a large charging network, although because of charging at home, we don't need quite so many uh, electric charging stations, we will need to have hydrogen stations because there's nowhere to fuel your hydrogen car at home. Exactly. And they're quite pricey. To put in one pump can cost up to $2 million. Exactly. It's a, it's a chicken and egg problem. Without the cars, we won't get the stations. And without the stations and the cars, we won't get less expensive stations uh, for, for hydrogen. So it will require a combination of government funding and vehicle manufacturer push to make this happen. California is spending some money on it, but less than others. Logically, you need fewer hydrogen stations than DC fast charge stations because it doesn't take as long to refill a vehicle. So you know the, the throughput can be higher depending on the station and the station design. Um, but it is it is very much in its infancy. This hydrogen infrastructure is where electrical infrastructure was really back when the first RAV4 EV came out in that, that kind of window. We're only talking about a few thousand hydrogen vehicles in California. Um, it is kind of cool. It's kind of quirky. Um, I don't know if I would buy another one, to be honest. I don't know I, I might if the conditions were right. Nothing has been wrong with the Nexo. It's been totally fine. Uh, the the constant drumbeat from EV fans, which I think is outsized versus reality, has been, oh, you know, the stations are broken or the stations don't work or the handles freeze or this, et cetera. That's fair. Honestly, over three years, we've never had that kind of problem with the Nexo. We've put 20,000 miles on it in three years, so it's not like we've never driven it. So it's definitely moved. Um, there was one week over the three-year period where there was a hydrogen shortage thanks to a hurricane uh, somewhere else. Um, the interesting twist is that even though the hydrogen four vehicles generally comes from California that are sold in California, it's it's still a global commodity hydrogen. So when there's a shortage in one area, there is a shortage everywhere because everybody's running around screaming for the same fuel stock. Um, and there've definitely been lessons learned in this process. The Nexo is unchanged versus what I have right now, so I wouldn't get another one, and I definitely wouldn't get MRI. I think that if Toyota really cared about hydrogen development, they would have made a hydrogen Highlander. Yeah, that's probably the case. Sometimes companies choose the exact wrong type of car to launch a new technology. With the EV1, it was the two-seat coupe, and yeah. unfortunately with the Mirai, it's a large LS-based sedan in an era when no one wants that. Uh, so some questions about... I mean, in their, just before we move on, in their home oh, market, yeah. it makes sense because in Japan, sedans still sell well. And if you're going to buy something that's that expensive and you're looking at a Crown or a Lexus, then, hey, why not get a Mirai? And it's going to be quirky. And they sell way more of them uh, outside the U.S. than they do in the U.S. Uh, it, South Korea is also very, very uh, into hydrogen because it does solve the where you charge problem. If you live in an apartment, which a lot of Koreans do, or a condo, which a lot of Koreans do as well, uh, and single home ownership is relatively low compared to America, then you need something that works in the current driving environment, infrastructure environment, and people can pull through and charge, recharge quickly, and hydrogen will do that. Uh, without a doubt. I, I do think that the natural topic transition here has got to be, uh, before we move on, it's got to be the question of whether or not this can work if the manufacturers themselves don't build out a hydrogen fueling network. Yeah. That's been my my big thing. And you talk to Hyundai and, and Honda and Toyota, and it's the same answer that they've had for decades about everything. Um, you know, we don't build gas stations. We build cars. Why should we build the gas station? And clearly the Tesla next to me is the answer, because if Tesla had not bothered to create a supercharger network, I would argue that Electrify America wouldn't exist, even though the penalty might have still been there what it was spent on might not have existed unless people really thought about, hey, that supercharger thing's kind of cool. It's what allows you to drive a Tesla from A to B, wherever that A and wherever that B might be in the United States. It's not perfect. There's definitely room for improvement, but it is that thing that has allowed that American road trip to function in a car. Um, 
bearing in mind that the American road trip is this fictitious thing that most Americans, oddly enough, do not ever embark upon, oddly enough. Like American road tripping is at a 70-year low, apparently, in America. Fewer people road trip than ever before. Um, and that there's there's pros and cons to this. Like the, the lack of hydrogen filling infrastructure outside of California is not a problem to me at all because California is a really big place. It takes me a very long time to leave. From where I am filming this right now, my closest exit's five hours away. And if I was going to drive five hours, I would just fly there. So there's there's really no major American city outside of California that I would drive to, to be perfectly honest. I won't even drive to San Diego. That's too far. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we have this notion of this romantic notion of like the family road trip and everything about it is wrong. It's always like a family heading out in a station wagon. Those are dead on a road trip, which never <laughs> happens to go to the Hoover Dam, which why would you ever as a vacation? Yeah. You know, it's like arms day of commercials as you go by. Um, you know, Americans do definitely road trip, but when you actually look at like the the way the way we've been programmed to romanticize the road trip and the way road trips actually happen, AAA considers a road trip something more than a hundred miles, which is not very far to be perfectly honest. My in-laws live more than a hundred miles away, and again, they're still way within the same states. You know, if you're in Rhode Island and you're crossing state lines, it seems like a big deal. But if if California was divided into Rhode Island-like states, I mean, this would be like 200 states between the top and the bottom. Um, I'm in Northern California, but there's still like 400 miles north of me till I get to Oregon. And there's nothing up there that I wanna see. Well, I mean, let me rephrase that. There's just nothing up there. I like seeing it, it is very pretty. And if you live in Northern California, you are a lovely person. But it's you and a bazillion trees. There is not a lot there. There's no, there's no going there for work. There's no like, you know, it's I'm going to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, that. you want to commune with nature, you want to go camping, hiking, backpacking, et cetera, that kind of thing. There's a lot of that there, but you still haven't left the state is my point. Well, this is a good transition point because right now we're going to talk about some regs, California, federal emissions, and of course, fuel economy. But one of the few genuine bargains left in terms of incentivization of new cars in the United States is that hydrogen space right now. Between California, federal, and manufacturer incentives, you can take a bite out of those $60,000 retail prices. Yes. And that's why they lease so cheap. That's why we got the Nexo, because it's three-year lease with fuel included, which is the important part with hydrogen vehicles. It's lease is uh, with tax as well, uh, $500 a month, including fuel, including tax. I mean, it's a really hard deal to beat. Yeah, something like a Mirai, it's gonna cost you between 54 and $67,000, depending on whether you go with an XLE or a limited. The fact is you can get in some cases $20,000 cash on the hood yep. in 2022 on yeah, a Toyota. Not buy one. Whatever you do, don't buy a Mirai, lease it, never buy one. And you will not be able to spend all that hydrogen credit you get. Rest assured, no. you will be free until the end of the lease. Exactly. It is not possible to consume it all within the period of the lease. Um, but yeah, regulations are an interesting thing. I mean, that's regulations are largely why we have more fuel-efficient vehicles in America. They're why hydrogen vehicles exist in America. They're why battery electric vehicles exist in America, plug-in hybrids, hybrids, all that kind of stuff, and quirky categories like the range-extending plug-in. Uh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, if you go all the way back to the beginning in the 1960s, you had the Clean Air Act. In the late 1960s, uh, the California Air Resources Board was created before the EPA, whose inception was 1970. And all of these things now coexist and overlap. Uh, there are various regulations that deal with emissions and fuel economy, and they're not the same thing because emissions are regulated by the EPA at the federal level, fuel economy by well, it's part of the Department of Transportation, the NHTSA. And then in California, you have overlapping regulations set by CARB, which predates the EPA. So it can set its own standards and 12 states in D.C. can choose to follow those. Uh, but you have to follow one or the other, CARB or EPA. Yep. Yep. You don't get to do your own thing. And, uh, and as a result, basically, California sets the standard for emissions because now that 12 states have been allowed to join uh, and they have chosen to do it, now you've got a bunch of states in the U.S. and it should be noted that a vast majority of the car sales and volume occurs in these states that we're talking about, the ZEV states, as they're generally referred to in the industry. Um, they, 
by default set the standards for America. Nobody's going to bother creating a special card just to sell in Georgia and Texas, um, even though those are big states for auto volume when you couldn't sell that same car in California, Oregon, Washington, et cetera. So now before we jump into the whole idea of credits, because credits are a huge part of the modern auto industry and the modern auto scene, both gas and EV, well, let's talk a little bit about changes recently in regulations. At the federal level, there's just been a finalization of standards that are going to take us through 2026, and these relate both to emissions and fuel economy. Again, two different agencies, but the more recent has been the fuel economy regulations through 2026. What's changed, and are the numbers as dramatic as they look at face value? That's Yeah, it's an important point there, is that they are not as dramatic as they look. So I have met a lot of people lately who've been tearing their hair out oh my god i'm going to be forced to drive a three-cylinder half-ton truck with batteries all over the place and this is not actually correct when you look at the trajectory of compliance most manufacturers are pretty close actually in categories uh, and there's some multiple points here to keep in mind the first thing to keep in mind is when they say 45 mpg or 40 mpg or whatever that mpg is for the CAFE compliance, the corporate average fuel economy standard, the important thing to remember is how that's calculated. It's not based on the window sticker on the car, which is the latest version of the fuel economy standard. It's the one before they had to calculate fuel economy in cold weather and with the air conditioning on and the high speed drive loop, etc. It's before voluntary reductions in fuel economy. It's before splits for different wheels and tire sizes, etc because it's an entirely different standard, which is funky part. Uh, it's based on one of the oldest fuel economy standards around. So based on that standard, something like a Prius gets like 70 miles per gallon. It doesn't get, you know, 56. So it's, it's compliance is way through the roof for that particular um, compliance category. And half-ton pickup trucks benefit especially from this because the remaining fuel economy standards that are actually used for their testing are relatively low speed. Uh, very short in nature, very low top speeds, very low average speeds, et cetera. The air conditioning's not on. All of that is great. And in the city cycle, things like start-stop uh, have a huge benefit in those fuel economy test results. So fuel economy in the real world might not be a huge benefit with start-stop, especially if you live in the south and it's hot. But in the fuel economy test cycle, big benefits. So that's why they do it. Same thing with mild hybrids, full hybrids plug-in hybrids, et cetera. And when we're talking about CAFE compliance, uh, you also get extra credits for running on E85, which is fun. So even though your actual real-world fuel economy is lower if you run a flex fuel car on E85, in the CARB, or sorry, the CAFE compliance test results, it actually gets a higher number. So all of that goes together into this big credit scheme where manufacturers have huge pools of credits for compliance. And these pools grow like you would not believe. As of 2015, uh, which is you know quite some time ago, and the number continues to grow, as of 2015, Toyota had over 200 million cafe credits in their credit bank. And that's why companies sell credits as well. Uh, you know, Tesla doesn't need any credits because they only sell zero emissions vehicles. So they can sell their credits. Interestingly enough, Honda's also sold their credits because they were like, we have way too many credits. We do not need all these credits. Let's just sell them. And other car companies have as well. Um, so when it comes to that, it's not really a huge problem, especially for companies like Toyota. You might think based on this credit scheme, because uh, uh, cafe credits are in two buckets. There's trucks and there's the other things. Yes. And based on these categories, you might think that Toyota would be in a world of hurt because all their trucks are, let's face it, pretty inefficient. Tundra gets shitty gas mileage. Um, you know, the, the Tacoma is pretty terrible as well. Sequoia, not great, but they sell a lot of very efficient sedans and they sell a lot more sedans and other efficient crossovers than they do trucks. And the EPA and, and the, uh, the department of whatever it is that controls cafe, they allow you to credit swap between categories. And there's some exchange math for how this is supposed to work. But if you sell enough plug-in hybrid, uh, Priuses or plug-in hybrid, whatever's, then you can trade those credits in for a, a, a loss of credits on the car side. And then finally, it should be noted that the fine for non-compliance is actually very, very small. Um, there was talk of raising it to $15 per mile per gallon missed by the target, and that did not happen. It is five mile, $5 per mile per gallon average missed on that category you know, per year. So 
it, that's not a lot. You know, if you're if your RAM 1500, which by my back of the napkin calculations is likely only within one or two miles per gallon off in the most efficient trim for that next stage of compliance today, then it's going to cost you five bucks, 10 bucks to pay that fine. Why would you pay the fine? Yeah, it's not quite the government takeover of the auto industry that some people have pitched precisely because among other things, there are so many adjustments that give you credits for things that even the average auto enthusiast knows are absolute nonsense, like grill shutters, like more efficient alternators, like LED energy efficient lights on a truck. Like how much of a difference is that going to make? It's going to make enough of a difference that you're going to get a credit for it. Things yeah. like that actually count towards your fuel economy credits. And it's also important to note that because in 2008, the e well, changes were made so that the window stickers on cars would reflect a new sort of rubric using the old test but accommodating calculations to make fuel economy estimates more realistic they couldn't change the tests themselves because they're so intertwined with things like emissions cafe fuel economy standards we still use those 70s tests which created this huge divergence of window sticker fuel economy and the the fuel economy for which the vehicle is rated by the government towards cafe and regulatory purposes. And it's a difference of at least 20% in which the window sticker is going to be 20% lower um, or worse relative to what the vehicle is actually rated at for regulatory purposes. Exactly. And it can be higher depending on what the manufacturer has chosen to do as far as their window sticker for real world, you know, you know, whatever. Manufacturers... Oddly enough, this may seem counterintuitive, but manufacturers will voluntarily reduce the fuel economy number on the window sticker versus what the tests will yield. So in some vehicles, the difference can be up to 30%. So you know, what you get for cafe compliance versus what's on the window sticker, that could be a pretty big gulf. And it's important to note that while in theory, by 2026, we're going to have something like a fleet average fuel economy level approaching 60 miles per gallon, the real fleet fuel economy average, like the the actual real world number is going to be in the low 40s. And so that's really what the manufacturers have to meet. And there is double counting, for example, of EVs. And even with Stellantis now, which by some accounts purchased $2.4 billion worth of credits from Tesla, which only makes EVs, a Stellantis is now saying it will no longer need to do that because, among other things, the merger and 30,000, you know, Wrangler four by E's Yep. And it's worth or, noting that the majority of their credits purchased were actually for compliance in Europe, not for North America, because in North America, they weren't far off. And so they, they spent a little bit, but there was not a lot. And most of the credits that uh, at that time Chrysler bought was actually from Honda <laughs> way back when Honda was selling. And that's a fact because in Europe, the merger has made the biggest impact on the product portfolio of, of what used to be Chrysler. In the U.S., we didn't see any big changes, but over there, it was a sea change in terms of fuel economy because of the small cars and fuel efficient, basically right. European market specific cars coming into the fold. And it's important to remember from a Tesla standpoint, what a big part of Tesla income those uh, credits were back in 2019 and 20, when in some quarters it would be up to $500 million just from regulatory credits. And that's going away now. By some accounts, the second quarter of 2021 was the first time Tesla didn't need those credits to make a profit. But this regulatory scheme was a huge part of the business model during the years when it was struggling oh, to survive. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes... You know, the credit scheme may sound stupid um, and and cafe kind of sounds ridiculous when you think about it. It sounds like this Kafka-esque you know, thing that could only exist in a government, but there actually have been positive impacts by it. You know, the only times that average fuel economy has gone up in the United States is when the cafe number has bumped up and you can follow that chart along yes. and you can see that real world fuel economy has actually improved. Um, and so whether you are a person chasing emissions compliance and you want reduced emissions and reduced smog, or whether you're beating the drum of energy independence, which is the generally speaking, the opposite side of that political spectrum, you should support both of these things, which has always blown my mind, I have to say, is that there is a side that's like, I don't like these rules, but I still want energy independence. Well, you know, one way to get to energy dependence is to stop using as much energy because, you know, in the United States, we pump an awful lot of oil out of the ground. The United States is a very, very, very large oil producer worldwide. And there is a conceivable route to America using only the oil that we produce domestically at some point in the future. 
if you could actually reduce consumption in vehicles. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. Um, California's ZEV compliance thing is a very similar kind of odd hodgepodge of credits, though, uh, which is interesting. So California has now said they want 35% of their vehicles to be electrified by, I believe it was 2025. Does that number sound right yeah, to you? That, that's correct. And then this quarter, yeah, this quarter, we're just over 16%. So we're actually halfway there in California. But remember that this is also the funny land of credits and schemes, um, which is why we have things like the BMW i3 range extender, why the Mazda MX-30 is probably going to be a range extender in California, et cetera. Um, so the moment that you have a gasoline engine under the hood, but the gas tank is so small that your electric range is larger than your gasoline range, all of a sudden, poof, it's an electric vehicle only. And for compliance reasons, it's 100% electric. And it's important to talk about energy independence. A lot of folks talk about the US being energy independent. And in the sense that we do create more energy out of total fossil fuel extraction than we burn, yes, that's true. But we do burn 38% more oil than we extract specifically. Mm -hmm. And at a little over 19 million barrels per day, if you look at the claimed e cumulative cafe savings, it's somewhere between two and a half and five million barrels per day relative to where we would be if they hadn't been implemented in 1975 after the Arab oil embargo and then stepped up over time. So when you consider that we were importing about 700,000 barrels of Russian oil per day pre-Crimea, uh, that gives you a, a more tangible sense of the impact of cafe. And like you said, there were no changes to the basic cafe requirements of cars between about 1985 and 2011. And it is that period after 2011 when the regs changed, when you did see that stuff up in range. So whether it's energy independence, ecological reasons, geopolitical reasons, uh, the regs have worked and there are benefits. And there has been real impact in the cost of consumption as well. The, the benefit to buying a RAV4 hybrid, for instance, over a RAV4 is that you will spend literally half as much on gasoline for choosing that hybrid model for only very, very minor increase in the cost of the vehicle. And if you're concerned about future maintenance and warranty costs, Toyota's hybrids are generally more reliable than their non-hybrids. And even if you have to replace the battery pack over 300,000 miles, which you have to know, battery pack replacement in Toyota hybrids is incredibly rare. Toyota batteries are not terribly expensive as far as battery pack replacements go. I mean, they're they're crazy expensive in like a Mercedes hybrid. If you have an S-Class hybrid and your battery has not failed yet, you should run real fast because that battery pack replacement can be around $30,000. And I kid you not on that number, um, $30,000 to replace the tiny battery in an S-Class hybrid. But if you have a Prius, the battery could be $1,500, $2,000, something like that installed in the vehicle and you will have saved much more than that in the lifetime of the vehicle in terms of fuel consumption so you're still positive even if you are in that rare circumstance where something has to happen like that what does the regulatory situation look like in california i think we should probably we should probably address that before we bow out just because it is different than nationally you mentioned that there's a desire to I get to an incredible percentage, 35% by 2025, I think, and ultimately phase out all gas-powered cars, at least new gas-powered car sales by 35. Mm -hmm. What is being done to make sure this happens from a regulatory standpoint, and is it realistic? Interesting question. Uh, there, there will be fines for non-compliance, et cetera, just like there are with most government mandates, but also you can expect that goalpost to move. California has moved that goalpost for decades, to be honest. This is not California's first ZEV mandate. Um, and it's also based on a credit scheme, plug-in hybrids count. So 35% is only double what we sell currently in California. Um, and that's not an insurmountable change. If you look at the progress of electrification in California, it seems like that curve could align right. Um, and by my calculations, there are 52 new vehicles from mainline manufacturers. I'm not talking about uh, excluding Rivian, excluding Tesla, because uh, the Cybertruck may never happen, excluding those vehicles, Bollinger, whatever, all those, excluding those just 50 models from mainline car companies that currently sell hundreds of thousands of cars in the United States uh, that are going to be plug-in hybrid or full battery electric by 2024. So well in advance of that deadline, they're going to be more than three times the number of models, I believe, currently on sale uh, right now that you can choose from to fit that bill. 
Whether or not the customers will choose them, that is an entirely different question, but it does appear that there is a strong desire for plug-in hybrids. Um, if, for instance, in California especially, Volvo currently sells the majority of their vehicles as plug-in hybrids in California. About 60% of their volume in California is a plug-in hybrid or a full battery electric vehicle. Um, so that definitely bodes well, I would say, for the, the plausibility of that working. Um, whether or not we will hit a rate of saturation at the people that are really interested in it and can support it and can do it is sort of my concern. At what point have, have we hit the point where every possible electric intender that owns a single family home or can charge at work now has one and now all the low hanging fruit is gone and now we're into a, a phase of trying to convince people that really would have to seriously modify their lifestyle to accept an electric vehicle and we have to be perfectly frank on that one that there there is a large portion of america a large portion of california where it would require significant lifestyle changes to adopt any form of electrification that would make an actual impact on economy. If you're if you live in a condo, if you're on the 60th floor of a building in downtown Los Angeles, you could buy a plug-in hybrid and that would count, I guess, but you're not making an impact to reality because you're never going to charge it living in that high-rise uh, unless you're in a very select demographic that actually has EV charging in their condo complex or their apartment complex. Um, but what's to convince that person to buy an electric vehicle over a gasoline vehicle when they would have to spend 18 to 20 minutes at a DC fast charge station every few hundred miles? That's going to be a harder sell than to someone like me who can plug it in at the office every day. And there it's actually a lifestyle improvement because now I never have to visit the gas station. I never have to deviate from my home to the office drive route because... I don't ever have to see a gas station in my life. And that's an important point. I think it's also worth mentioning, like you said, that this, the original ZEV mandate, which came about in 1990, came about at a time when the average range of an electric car was about 18 holes on a good day. Yeah. And they repeatedly pushed back the, frankly, unrealistic requirements for zero emission vehicles, especially battery vehicles, through the 90s and the 2000s. And it's only really recently that what was envisioned in 1990 has become even technically feasible on a mass scale. So I think I see that elimination of gas-powered vehicles and certainly that 35% by 2025 as a soft target that's more aspirational than not. I don't think that the you know, the hand of God is going to fall on drivers if we right. don't get there. And I'm fine with the aspirational goal, because if you set a goal, you're never going to achieve anything. You have to know, you have to have an idea of where you want to go first. So I'm actually fine with California's ZEV goal. I consider myself, you know, an environmentalist, but also a realist. You know, I, I have battery vehicles. I have a hydrogen vehicle. I live off the grid in Northern California. I mean, if I, if I literally wasn't hugging a tree right now I, i'm not sure how much greener i could possibly get but i also own a vehicle with a 6.4 liter v8 because there's no electric vehicle that will do what i need to do with that vehicle um, and that's part of this mixed reality that it's going to take a while until we can actually satisfy all those needs and i have to say that it is perfectly plausible that there will still be needs that cannot be met by by battery electric vehicles as we can conceive of them right now. There are there may still be requirements for some other kind of vehicle. That is a whirlwind and all of it from the interior of an electrical BMW. Yeah. An industry first. And uh, you know, I've only used one percent of my battery. I just looked over at my gauge. I'm only down at 76% for having been air conditioned in here the entire time. Oh, I've I've only used about five percent of the battery in my laptop, so I think I'm beating you. <laughs> Well, that's a wrap, guys. Time out, Tim out, Alex out, and check us out. Yep, and hit that subscribe button down there if you haven't already done so. Check out the website, the merch store, all those other places. And, of course, find us over at Facebook uh, because you can see what I'm driving today and uh, interact with things like uh, what's the real-world range on that Tesla Model S right next to me if you find us over at Facebook. See everybody later.